Welcome to Over the Rainbow, the podcast where we attempt to answer all of those questions about colour we've all asked late at night. My name is Stephen Westland and I'll be joined in these sessions by Hugh Owens and Helen Disley. So I heard two interesting comments about our podcast uh, from listeners. Um, One was that we should do a YouTube video of it. And I said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, just show the three of us on screen as we are now. We can see each other on screen using Zoom. And it reminds me of um, a good friend of mine was approached by headhunters to apply to be head of London College of Fashion. And speaking on the phone, my friend said to the headhunter, if you could see me now, you would realise how ridiculous this conversation is. Because he was the least likely person you could see as head of London College of Fashion. And I think we're also the least likely people um, people would like to see um, on, on YouTube, to be honest. So I think we'll stick with the podcast. And then the second funny thing was um, a very good friend of mine was asking for the transcript of this conversation, these conversations that we have. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you have a script. Uh, well, as if this could be scripted. I mean, if, if it was scripted, it would... Surely it would be a, li- a little bit better than it is. Um, but that was quite funny. We do have sometimes a few things jotted down um, of topics we might like to talk about. Ha- certainly hardly a transcript. Hardly a transcript, though. Um, and we learned last week that Hugh doesn't have anything written down. Absolutely. Um, uh, indeed. Um, so the topic uh, this week is, is colour mixing. So... Um, do you want to have a go here at sort of just saying what colour mixing, what it is? It's a, I think it's a, it's a really interesting topic. And this is, for me, where a lot of the teaching in art schools mixes some of the sort of colour science type teaching that, that we provide in our jobs, Steve. I also think there's, there's something unfulfilling about some of the terminology in this area I think that when we talk about things like primary colours I'm not sure that I've ever seen a a very good definition of a a primary colour so as Steve said we're starting to talk a little bit about perhaps colour mixing and if I were to say to you it's your first day at school the teachers said to you, um, I'd like you to paint a picture of where you live. It may well be that you have some poster paints at the front of the classroom and the teacher says you're allowed to pick three different colours of poster paint in order to help you um, make your beautiful picture of where you live. Well, let me ask you, Steve and, and Helen, what colours would you pick? Um, it's, it's obviously tempting to say red, yellow and blue. <laughs> but I, I think I'd want to have a green in there because you're never going to make a decent green with red, blue and yellow. It's going it's to be murky. I would choose, I'd have a green. Very few artists actually, if any, make their paintings just from three colours. You know, um, 
I mean, you, you could think you, you could think about Mondrian, the Dutch artist, who used red, yellow, and blue with white and black. So he was, but he had a particular idea he was trying to get across. He wasn't trying to make full color pictures out of mixing three colors. And if you think about it, if you really could make all colors by mixing three, why would we be selling sets of paints for artists with like 24 colors? You, I mean, you could argue, well, it's, it's simply because it's easier. So, so they don't, don't have to do the mixing. But it turns out it's a very, very difficult, if, if not impossible, to make all colours from mixing three. So, um, yeah, if I, was, if I was doing what you said, Hugh, I'd probably not want to start with three at all in the first place. I, I'm not surprised we couldn't get a firm answer from you, Steve. Helen no. quite happily said, yep, red, yellow, blue. And, and I think that's very sensible. Um, you can make a your lovely yellow sun in the sky and the red bricks of your house if that's the sort of house that you live in uh, perhaps a nice blue sky uh, as Helen said you can mix the, the blue and the yellow together and make a nice lawn outside of your, your house um, perhaps mix the red and the, the blue together so that you're we're wearing a nice purple top uh, or mix them all together and, and have some contrast in your image to have a, a nice dark perhaps brown or, or black but this is definitely one of the issues that we first have and this is at perhaps university level when we say to students who first come to to, to meet us um, tell us about color um, what are primary colors we always get those colours that they're taught at school. And, and that's, that's okay, but it's only a very small or limited way of creating colour. Um, I think we probably should talk a little bit about different uh, terminology that we might use. So Exactly. So one of the things I, 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 I've recently become really aware of as an important point, Hugh, is the notion that you can't mix colour at all, strictly speaking. You, you can't mix colour because colour is a perception. So what you can do is mix coloured things. You can mix coloured ink, or you can mix coloured paint, or you can mix coloured light, but you can't actually mix colour per se. And the reason that's interesting is when people say, what are the colour primaries? So I, I remember, in fact, Helen may have been there, but about 30 odd years ago, I was in a pub. With a, Surely with a not. <laughs> what what, what the, are those? A, a pub quiz. And the question was, what are the primary <gasps> colours? Right? And I said, or I wrote on my little form confidently, red, green and blue. And the quiz master said, no, it's wrong. It's red, yellow, blue. Um, the fact I had a PhD in colour science meant nothing. Um, I still lost a point. Um, but the, the point is, when people say, what are the primary colours? It's meaningless without talking about the things that you're mixing. And the reason why people get confused by saying, oh, uh, I, I thought the primary colours were this, and now you're saying they're that. It's because they're thinking you can mix colour per se. 
So once you understand you can't mix colour per se, but you can mix colour things, colour things, then you realise that, well, actually mixing inks and paints might be quite different to mixing lights, for example. And as you know, Hugh, we, we tend to split colour mixing into two categories. Mixing coloured lights, we tend to call additive colour mixing. And mixing coloured inks or paints or, or dyes, we tend to call subtractive colour mixing. And once you start to understand this, it starts to become quite reasonable that the, the best set of primaries to use in one situation might be quite different to the best set in a, in a different situation, if that makes sense. Yeah, really interesting. So but perhaps another word we might use for those, those items that physically colour a material would be a colorant. We'd perhaps talk about colorants. And then, as you say, when we're talking about the perception, we perhaps might say color in more general. But there's a lot of time when those two terms uh, are confused into one, really. Yeah, it is. So I, I spend a lot of time on a particular website called Quora answering people's questions. There's a lot of questions where there's a confusion in language, for example. Uh, exactly as you say about what these things mean. So, for example, some people use the word colour and the word hue, which is whether something is basically red, yellow, blue, green, etc., as being synonyms, as if they're the same thing. But, of course, they're not the same thing. Colour is a more general term about our perception. Hue is one attribute of colour. So one of the reasons this has all got very confused and mixed up is people using these terms very loosely and then misunderstandings occurring. So, for example, if you take three uh, primaries, reasonably well chosen, um, in either light or in terms of colourants, you can quite easily find three primaries that can make all hues. But you can't easily find three primaries that can make all colours. So people might see something written about, oh, you can make all hues from three primaries, but then when it's like um, Chinese whispers, that's the phrase, isn't it? When they say it to the next person, they say, oh, you can make all colours, and bang, straight away, the confusion's happened. I, I completely agree, because I think when we're both talking about colour, we, we generally are talking about three aspects of colour. So as, as you say, we might be talking about... Um, the hue, the, the colour name that, that we associate with that signal. We might Which be... I've always felt, by the way, it's very, it's very apt that you're <laughs> as, a, as a colour scientist. You were destined to be a colour scientist. You're probably right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then the, the other two would, would be lightness. But then the, there's another quality as well, the amount of colour that's actually in that material. So this, this idea of chroma as well. So when we're talking about the colour of an object, we're, we're thinking in those three dimensions, whereas many people will just say, oh, it's red or it's blue. Yeah, and, and, and for them, for them, hue is the same as colour. Mm. Absolutely. At, at that level of explanation, and that, that's where it happens. You also have people referring to words like tint and shade, shade as being synonymous with colour or synonymous with hue, and again, tints and shades and tones, technically, are, are quite specifically different from hue it's and. It's more color. of a probably more of a design um, way of, th of speaking. 
Yeah, I think so. But but at at some level, they get all mixed up into one, and that's why it gets very difficult to talk about. Yeah, and there are lots of assumptions I think that go alongside that. So, for instance, if if you ask somebody about painting a a house or or whatever, they they will default to what we call these opaque pigment subtractive primaries. So they they mm. go with red, yellow, and blue, and they they also assume that each of those colours will contribute the same strength of colour to the mixture as well. So they're almost balanced primaries, when that isn't necessarily always the case, especially when we're looking at uh, things like dyes or paints later on. No, indeed. And uh, uh, similarly, you might get someone saying, what happens when you mix red, yellow and blue? Expecting the answer black. But of course, they didn't specify in what proportions. Absolutely. You know, 99, 99 parts of um, red with half a part of blue and half a part of yellow is, is not going to make black. It's, it's absolutely true, yeah. And, and even in, the, in most ideal cases, um, if, if you take a, a red, yellow and blue pigment and you mix them together, you're, you're still going to get something like a muddy brown mm. at the end of it because they don't absorb perfectly in each of those wavelength bands. So you get a little bit of light left over from, from each of those primaries. So, so one of the things that um, I, I think is worth bringing in at this stage is why anyone should be interested in, in colour mixing. So, f for example, I, I, I'm probably more interested in additive colour mixing than subtractive colour mixing. And I think it's really important. So, for example, um, you can imagine, you know, as it happens, Manchester United won 9-0 last night and I was watching it on television. How many? Um, and we... Nine nil. It's actually the um, only the third time in Premiership history that a team has won nine nil. Do, do you know the other two? I know at least one yeah. of them. I think because I, I think um, United have done it at least once before. Oh really? Yeah, United beat uh, Ipswich nine nil in about ninety um, five. I'm not sure of the year, but last year um, Leicester beat Southampton nine nil. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. And, and last night, Manchester United beat Southampton 9-0. So the same team have now suffered 9-0 defeats in consecutive seasons. Anyway, um, of course, this is not uh, a United podcast, <laughs> sadly. Um, but if, if, if you were watching the game on TV, you see the red shirts on TV. And if you were at the game, imagine you could go to the game, you see the red shirts. But spectrally, they're very, very different. So if you, measured, if you measured the light being reflected from a red shirt in real life and then you look at a picture on screen of that red shirt and look at the, um, the red on the screen and the light being emitted by the screen, they're really different. And it, and it turns out that a TV can um, replicate all these different colours by mixing together essentially red, green and blue light, but it's not, it's not monochromatic red, green and blue, but essentially reddish, greenish and blue light together. That is only possible because of additive mixing. So if you didn't have additive mixing, if you didn't have that at all, you wouldn't have TV, you wouldn't have mobile phone displays, you wouldn't have cinematography, you wouldn't have photography, at least not in the way we have them today. They could, they could exist, but in a, 
in a, in a totally different way. So for me, um, additive color makes things interesting because I think it's it's an essential essential component of the way in which we use digital color images. And and, and I remember um, in about 1991, um, maybe 92, seeing the internet for the first time on a computer uh, at Keele University, in fact. And I remember thinking at the time, well, that's not going to be up to much, is it? <laughs> that's not very, not, it's not very interesting. Um, and it, it wasn't very interesting because, to be fair, it was an intranet. You could only visit other sites within Keele University. And secondly, there were no pictures. It was only text. And thirdly, it was only black and white. So it really wasn't very interesting. Um, but I, I, I argue that the, the whole growth of the internet has been driven by colour imaging. Imagine how boring the internet would be without imaging devices, without cameras, without movies. Um, so you, there's a good case to say that additive colour mixing is a technology that underpins something really important in our society. And that's, that's why I, I, I like to think about additive colour mixing in particular, the way in which light mixes together. It's probably worth, at this point, trying to draw a distinction between the different types of colour mixing. So that there is really three main types of colour mixing. So we've got subtractive colour mixing, and this is where we have, uh, let's say, a white light source incident on a material. And because of the atomic structure of something that's either within the material or coated on top of the material, some light will be returned from that surface unchanged. So, But some of it will be returned changed. So that means that, for instance, if you were to go outside on a, a lovely sunny day uh, and you walk up to your nice red car and you put your hand on the car, hopefully you'll be able to feel the heat so although you've got white light incident, some of that in incident light will be returned in a, a longer wavelength band, which will give you this, this, this heat, this, this um, mm. near-infrared that you're feeling when you, when you touch the car. So for subtractive colour mixing, we have a, a white light source, a mixture of all the different colours or all the different wavelengths together. I know Steve will pull a face when I say all the different colours. <laughs> Some of those colours will be returned, and that will give us the base colour of our of our object. And some will be absorbed and retransmitted in a different band. Uh, usually, and before you go on, because we must forget the train of thought, you're going to talk about the other two absolutely um, methods. But before you do that, I just want to make a, a point about yeah. that. A lot of people think, and you see this in textbooks, that say you take an, an orange T-shirt, for example, that most of the wavelengths, apart from the orange ones, are absorbed by the material. And as you say, Hugh, they're converted into heat and dissipated invisibly. And that the T-shirt reflects the orange wavelengths. And you get textbooks showing just the orange ones coming back up. Yeah. And of course, it'd be great if light was that, life was that simple. <laughs> but if you, if you look at the light being reflected from an orange T-shirt or, or dress or, or shoe or whatever... You can see it's not only the orange wavelengths, it's quite broad wavelengths. And in fact, 
you might have more red light being reflected than orange light. So people like the first model because it's simple and it's based on the idea that light is coloured. And an object looks orange because it reflects the orange wavelengths. But remember the discussions we've been having the last few weeks about the fact that light isn't really coloured. It just has the ability to make us perceive colour. So what is it about the light reflected from an orange t-shirt that makes it look orange? Well, additive colour mixing is, is coming in there. Even with that, even though it's a material, because that thing is actually reflecting light. Um, but not in the way that people often think. So... Anyway, that's your your first one was um, yes, no, subtractive uh, and, mixing. So let's, let's yeah, now, just because you've mentioned it at this point, and we're talking about say this orange T-shirt, it's worth yeah. saying that not not the full intensity of the orange wavelengths in the incident light source are going to be returned; only a fraction of mm. them. So. Otherwise, you know, if, if, if the sun bounced off everything at 100% intensity, we'd really struggle <laughs> to see yeah, anything. I, I, I've often said, technically, if you take, say, an orange T-shirt, it reflects all of the visible wavelengths to some extent and absorbs all the visible wavelengths to some extent. Yes. But it absorbs much more strongly in some regions, for example, the blue region, than it does in the long regions. So the idea that it just absorbs all the non-orange wavelengths and, and just reflects the, the, the orange wavelengths, that's the sort of simplification I'm keen to, to, to discuss. That would be a, a perfect reflector, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so, um, yeah, thank you for that, Steve. So we've got this situation with subtract, subtractive colour mixing where we've got colourants. And we've got a white light source, and in in the case that I'm talking about, and some of that energy is going to get absorbed. So only a small amount will be returned from the surface. So we can see our orange mm. T-shirt, for instance. For that type of colour mixing, there are two basic sorts of um, primaries that people talk about. So we've talked about one, we've talked about red, yellow and blue, and these are often called the opaque pigment primaries. There's another set as well, because when you go to the shop, you don't go and buy red, yellow and blue for your printer. You, you buy cyan, magenta and yellow, and usually a black as well for your, for your mm. printer. And these are, are called the transparent pigment subtractive primaries now some people Hugh, so, sorry some people say that cyan magenta and yellow are just fancy names for a red yellow and blue have you heard that idea? i have heard that idea but go on you tell us some more <laughs> no, no no that's it all right that's yeah <laughs> uh, and it's it, then it becomes interesting because when we start so, sorry 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 yeah. Hugh, sorry to interrupt again but cyan is a more just so people, people might not know these words cyan is a sort of a, a greeny blue and magenta is a sort of uh, bluish red is that fair to say? yeah i think that's that's a that's yeah. a good summary yeah yellow is yellow yeah. well is yellow yellow <laughs> when, when, when we get on to additive <laughs> representations okay so uh, 
Quite right. So we've talked about subtractive colour mixing. We start off with white light source. Some of that energy is going to get absorbed and then some is going to get returned from a surface. The second major sort of, of colour mixing is, is what Steve's mentioned. You could start off in a, in a dark room and you could turn on coloured lights. So then we have an emissive source which will um, add into a mixture. So we've got this, this, this second idea of, of mixing lights together, an additive colour mixture. And then finally, there's this idea of partitive or optical mixing. So people like the, the pointillists made very good use of this, or your television. If you get close enough to your television with a magnifying glass and you look at it close up, you can see those individual coloured pixels that, that Steve's been talking about before. But as you move further and further back, your eye is incapable of resolving that fine detail. So averages over an area. So it's going to average that light over an area. And as I say, you know, if you, uh, if you look at some of the pointillists paintings close up, you can see the small dots of pure pigment on the painting mm. itself. As you move back, everything merges into a, a smoother... In fact, some, some of the Impressionists adopted that painting style specifically because it enabled them to get much brighter colours on, 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 the, on the, uh, the canvas than by mixing um, more conventionally the, the colours together. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were very clever. Very clever. Very clever indeed. So those are sort of the three main areas. We've talked a little bit about the, um, the opaque colour mixture, uh, colour pigments, um, but as Steve says, I think the additive colour mixtures, and we, we use different primaries for, for an additive colour mixture. We use red, green and blue, as Steve says. They give us um, our televisions, our cinema uh, screens as well. But they also allow us to do something called colour specification. And probably talk about that in a in a different podcast steve yeah i think so big topic that's that's a, a very big topic um so what we've said is with subtractive color primaries we start off with something that's white and we take away the the those wavelengths those different colors with an additive color mixture when we add everything together um probably we should mention about primaries, secondaries and tertiaries, which are just the mixtures and all three. Yeah. Is that too much, Steve? No, no, no. <laughs> it's not my, fa my favourite topic. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I won't go into that then. Perhaps we'll no, do it another can, day and just say if you mix all three of those additive primaries, then you're going to get a white. Whereas if you mix together those three colorants that make up the subtractive mixtures, you get a black. Yeah, yeah. It's probably my medical history, to be honest, Hugh. I mean, I had a bit of an unfortunate thing happen this week. Um, I accidentally swallowed some food dye. <laughs> and uh, I, I went to see the doctor, and um, I thought it might be quite serious. She said, it'll be okay, I think. But I don't feel quite right, and it, it feels like I'm dying inside. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, that's dreadful. 
I had to just squeeze that one in at some point. <laughs> oh no. No. So I, I, actually, Hugh, one one thing I I would say about primaries and and kind of mixing. So we've already said there are different primaries for different purposes. Um. So, I, personally, I'm I'm a little bit sort of um, unhappy with saying categorically there are three primaries. I, I don't think there need to be three primaries. So, for example, um, it turns out you can't make all hues by mixing two. You need to have three to make all hues. Um, but you can't make all colours, remember, but you can make all hues. Um, is this, is this valid turn- for additive and subtractive? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely the same. You can't make... Whether it's additive or subtractive, you can make all hues with three, but you can't make all colours. And it turns out for additive, three is really ubiquitous. You know, pretty much every phone screen, well, every phone screen I've ever used, every TV screen, um, has three primaries. But actually, if you think of subtractive colour mixing, what's the most common form of that? Uh, it's printing. Printing is where people mix colours subtractively on a daily basis. And I would argue with printing, C-M-Y-K, sign magenta, yellow and black. Well, we, we, we perhaps know that the reason, the reason printers use black is because, for all sorts of reasons, it gives you better blacks and it, it's cheaper than using a mixture of sign magenta and yellow when you're making black text, for example. So it's, it's just a good thing to do. But I would argue that is a four-colour primary system mm-hmm. that you're mixing together four colours to make um, a, a wide range of colours. And in fact, there are printers you can buy on the market that have maybe six or 12 inks in them. If you could make all colours from just three, why would you need printers like that? They exist to give a wider gamut. And then you could argue that if you were a paint company, you, know, you might go to a DIY store to buy your paints, um, and you might see hundreds of paints there, but the paint manufacturer has made those paints by mixing together some primary paints. But how many have they used? Have they just used three? Red, yellow and blue? Or cyan, magenta and yellow? No, no. They've used about 20. Not all at once. That's how you and I would do it. But <laughs> they've mixed together usually three or four for any particular shade or colour. Um, they, they've mixed together. So they, they have a set of maybe 20 primary paints that they can use to make all of their colours. The people who dye all your clothes, all of those textile manufacturers, they make it, they make those clothes colours by mixing together dyes or sometimes pigments. They they tend to use two or three or four at a time. But how many do they have in the library that they can use? How many primaries do they have? Twenty or thirty. And then you could even argue that that you can have in certain cases less than three, even though it would be suboptimal because you'd have limited, very limited colour gamut. But the, uh, the first commercial um, movie business was uh, cinema colour. 
and uh, Cinema Colour, which was around about 1915, was introduced as a commercial system for making movies using just red and green. So they took movies through two filters, one through a red and one through a green filter, and then projected them back onto the screen through red and green filters to make a, a, a wide range of colours. I, I say wide range, you can see some of these things on, on YouTube. Uh, they're not very impressive, to be honest. But in 1915, 1918, that was really impressive. Um, so practically, you know, although there's something special about the number three because we have three cones in the eye and that's why you need three primaries to make all hues. But practically, there are many, many examples of systems out there that mix colour, that use two or three or four or six or 12 or 20. Um, so before we started, Hugh and I were talking about the definition of a primary. It's very difficult to find a good definition, but uh, practically, um, I, my definition is um, to say that a set of primaries is a set of um, lights or colorants that you can mix together to make a useful or wide range of colors. Bang, leave it there. Uh, and, and, let, and let people use whatever system they, they like to use. I've got a question about this, well, about mixing in general. We were talking, Hugh mentioned earlier about if you, if you zoom in with a magnifying glass, uh, you would see uh, in your orange T-shirt some red dye and some yellow dye molecules if you went in far enough you your, your red and yellow dyes have not come together and created an orange molecule have they imagine you take a red light and a green light single wavelength red single wavelength green and you shine them onto a screen and then you overlap them to produce yellow right yeah that, that was so, one of my questions you can't see the red and the green light no matter how carefully you look because of the way our visual system works. But the red and the green light are still there. It's not as if the red light and the green light have magically mixed together in some way to create a yellow light, which I think is what a lot of people think. It's still single wavelength red and single wavelength green. But that mixture is literally indistinguishable to us from single wavelength yellow. It goes back to the example on the, on the screen when you see the red of the United players and the red in real life. We're not very good at distinguishing the spectral quality of any colour or any light. Now, when it comes to um, looking at prints and things like that and, and dyes, actually some, some prints or some printers, there's a more intimate mixing of the ink. But some, they're printing in terms of dots. So Hugh's argument of partitive colour mixing then takes place. But you're raising another issue, Helen, which is if you keep going down in magnification and you've got, a, let's say you've got a red molecule for a dye and a yellow one, and together they're creating orange, as you say, they haven't magically created a, 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 They haven't orange. reacted, have they? They're still there. No, in, in no. There. So in other words, my argument is... Whether you're looking at screens, whether you're looking at prints, textiles, whatever it is, additive, additive mixing is in there. 
because it's how the brain and the eye respond to the light that is emitted or reflected. You can't ignore additive colour mixing if you want to even understand how dyes or pigments work. So that's a really, really good question, Helen. But my other question, the question that I actually had in my mind, first of all, was about the primaries. You're saying like printers that have 20 primaries. If they have an orange primary, is it, is it an orange molecule primary? Uh, usually, yeah. yes. Yeah. So they would, they would, they, you can, you can, you can, the, 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 say you want to make a purple or, or an orange colourant. The best way to do it isn't by mixing. The best way is to start with a molecule that is orange or a molecule which is purple. Um, now you you can create that hue by mixing together. So you can make a, a purple by mixing together a red and a blue, for example. But in many cases, you might match the hue, but your mixture will be a little bit dull and desaturated and a little bit unsatisfying. Um, so uh, the, the paint manufacturer, for example, will start with an, literally an orange pigment or a yellow pigment or a purple pigment dispersed in a, in a polymer to make a paint. And, and these are high chromatic um, colours, which they'll mix together in various combinations sometimes also with a little bit of white or black or grey um, to create a, a wide range of colours. But you're making a very nice point, Helen, about the fact that if people say, what is colour mixing? Um, I often say to them, the question you should be asking isn't what is colour mixing, it is where is colour mm. mixing? Because my argument is, is that colour mixing, whether you're talking about colourants or lights, colour mixing actually occurs in the retina yeah. and to a lesser extent in the brain. I know Hughes, he would bring in all the postreceptoral processing and things like that. But yeah, the, the retina is where um, colour mixing actually takes place. You know, red and white, sorry, red and green light make yellow. They don't mix in any physical sense of the word. They're just coincident. And, uh, and I, I just have to do a quick plug here for my... Um, I've recently had the idea of trying to teach these concepts using Instagram, which might seem a really strange choice, but I'm quite interested in the, the fact that Instagram is a, a very low bandwidth medium. You're just trying to communicate things with a few pictures and a very small number of words. So we could speak for hours, and as you know, I often do, about these topics. I'm <laughs> um, happy to speak for, about it for a day. I, I love it. right? But I think it's always very interesting to say, if you only have got five minutes to speak about something, that's when you really find out whether you understand it and whether you can communicate it. It's much harder to give a five-minute talk than a, a one-hour talk. There's a famous joke, isn't there? It's a, it's a saying. It's a real saying. It's sometimes attributed to Churchill. Sometimes to someone else, one of the American presidents, but it basically says, this guy was asked to give a talk, he agreed to give a talk, and then the person said, well, uh, how much notice do you need? And he said, well, that rather depends on how long you want me to speak for. If you want me to speak for five minutes, I'll need three days to prepare. If you want me to speak for an hour, I'm ready now. And, and that sums it up, it's easy to speak for an hour. So anyway, back to, back to the point. Um, I am interested in using Instagram 
as a way of thinking, well, if I can only show this concept with three or four pictures and a very small number of words, um, how can I do that in a way which is meaningful? Um, I think it's a, just an interesting exercise to try. And uh, so in the last week, I've created um, a series of Instagram images. Each one is a series of five or six images, um, which try to talk about things like additive colour mixing or colour contrast um, or whether colour is physical or perceptual. And if, if you use um, Instagram, probably none of our listeners are young enough to know what it is, but um, <laughs> if you use Instagram, if you do use it, then um, if you look at the username Colour Chat, which is colour with a U, of course, Colour Chat, um, then you can see these, um, these things I've, I've created. I think that's probably a really good place to, to finish because we can go on and perhaps talk about um, colour deficiency next week. And there's a link. I think that would be a great topic. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a link there with the, the physiological primaries, our perceptual primaries. I'd like to finish with a colour mixing joke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if, if I, I'm going to clarify this as a, as a subtractive colour mixing joke. Did you hear about the red ship and the blue ship that crashed together in the Pacific? The crew were marooned. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's actually worse than mine. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best I could find. <laughs> marooned, I like it, I like it. Um, yeah, I, th- I think next week we'll do, we'll do um, colour deficiency, Hugh, because um, it's, it's an interesting topic because, you know, about 8%, 1 in 12, maybe, of all men um, are, are what we call colour deficient in their vision. Um, very, very few females. Um, I've not met one who is colour deficient in all my career. And have you, have you met one, Hugh? Yeah, I mean, at the institution I'm at, we, we were teaching perhaps uh, cohorts of 160 and we'd put them through um, a couple of different colour vision tests. Ah, so okay. Ishihara, but uh, also Farnsworth Monsell 100 Hue. Yeah, um, yeah. They are far more rare, but they're out there. Oh, they're out there, yeah. yeah. Um, my, claim to, my, my claim to fame, when I, I went for a job interview back in 1987 at um, English Sewing Threads, and I did the Munsell Hue test, and I got it one hundred percent correct. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm quite proud of that as well. <laughs> um, so, fun, funny enough, the, normally had <laughs> the hundred Hue test is one where if you score score below a certain level, yes, you're colour deficient, but above that level, you're classed as normal. But there's still a range of performance, and if you practice it, mm. or if you're used to looking at colour, you actually get a little bit better at colour discrimination, and you can actually get get a hundred percent. I've done it as well. Hugh's still working towards it. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure we can talk more about that next week because Farnsworth Munsell is the 100 Hue test is obviously a test of colour discrimination. It's slightly it different it to, yeah. to colour deficiency. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, we can talk much more about that next week. Okay, look forward to that. Um, so thanks very much, guys, and uh, see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. See you. Bye.